0: Have you ever wondered why a certain house in your neighborhood has stood abandoned for years or even decades? Or maybe you've heard about a terrible murder in your town, but you've never known exactly where it happened. My name's Jules, and welcome to the first episode of Morbid Tourism, the podcast. On this podcast, I'm going to talk about the true crime cases that may have happened closer to home than you thought. Warning, this podcast contains descriptions of violence and sexual assault against children and may be triggering for some listeners. This podcast is not recommended for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Before we get started, I wanted to give you a little quick introduction about who I am. So I am not a professional podcaster or content creator. I've been super nervous about putting this podcast out. Uh, I am very new to this, so please bear with me while I kind of find my footing. And uh, if it's not the most amazing podcast out the gate, stick with it. I'm going to do everything I can to make it uh, really great. Um, Yeah, but I really hope that you like this show. Uh, I really hope that you subscribe. Um, I've put a lot of work into the website, uh, the podcast, the Instagram, um, and I just hope that it's great and I hope that that you like it. But a little bit about me, in my daily life, I'm actually a software engineer, like web developer, but I've always been really interested in true crime. So I'm the kind of person, probably a lot like you, who will try to steer like any conversation towards serial killers. Um, I watch every new true crime documentary on Netflix the day it comes out, and I've definitely gone into some deep rabbit holes uh, on the internet about random murders. So when I started building my website, morbidtourism.com, which is where this podcast gets its name, I basically had to ask myself, why am I like this? Why do I like murder? Which is definitely the wrong way to put it. You know, I don't like murder, but I'm fascinated by it and why Why am I so interested in it? But once I gave myself time to kind of think about it, the answer was obvious. So for the introductory episode of Morbid Tourism, I'm going to be addressing a case that was my personal introduction to evil. So we're going to start in Rancho Cordova, California. Rancho Cordova is a middle-class suburb just outside of Sacramento, In the 1970s, the community had been terrorized by the East Area Rapist, who then became known as the Golden State Killer, Joseph James D'Angelo. But we're not going to talk about the Golden State Killer today. We're going to fast forward from the 70s to November 8th, 2000. 12-year-old Courtney Sconce felt safe as she walked from her school to a convenience store like she'd done many times before. Just after 3 p.m., Courtney bought a snack from the convenience store and started her short walk home. It was just a few blocks. She had done it a million times. She felt comfortable. It was just a normal day. After she had walked a few blocks, she was at the corner of Cordova Lane and Glenhaven Way. This is an intersection that is pretty much just houses. It's, um, There's a stop sign on one side, it's kind of a T intersection, um, and it's very residential. Houses all around. This neighborhood, it's not the best neighborhood, but it's also not the worst. There was, you know, some crime around here, but it was more like theft, robbery, things like that. When she was at that corner, a black BMW pulled over next to Courtney. Courtney was a tomboy. She loved playing basketball. She often wore, like, basketball shorts to school. And she also liked cars, especially BMWs. She liked them so much that she had a BMW poster in her room. So when the car pulled over next to her, she was kind of intrigued. It was a nice car. She liked it. Um, So she wasn't scared off the bat. The driver, who was a male in his, like, late teens... He exited the car, and he walked over to Courtney, and he asked her for directions. Courtney mentioned to him that she liked his car, uh, and the driver basically asked her if she wanted to go for a ride. Courtney was a smart girl, though. She knew not to get into cars with strangers, so she declined. She said, thank you, but no thanks. I just like your car. But when she declined, the driver told her he had a gun, and he forced her into the car. He immediately drove away from the neighborhood, and made his way onto the freeway and drove west. That evening, just before nightfall, the body of a young girl was found along a riverbank around 40 miles from where Courtney was last seen. Officers showed a photograph of the found girl to Courtney's parents and they were devastated because they confirmed that their worst fears were true. Courtney was dead. Courtney had been assaulted, raped, and ultimately she was strangled to death, but DNA from her murderer was found, and the attacker left behind a few items, one of which was an Adidas visor. Now, I know that this seems like a kind of weird detail, but bear with me, this Adidas visor comes into play later. So right away, investigators began to interview suspects, compare DNA, you know, all of the kind of normal stuff to try to identify Courtney's killer. They were fairly confident in the beginning that they would be able to figure out who it was because there was so much evidence. And they figured it was probably someone that Courtney had some kind of a connection with, you know, just grabbing someone off the street isn't as common. True crime fans know this, it's usually someone connected to the victim. So, in the beginning, they were fairly confident. While awaiting answers, friends and family of Courtney's gathered at the corner of Cordova Lane and Glenhaven Way, the corner where Courtney had last been seen. As the hours grew into days and the days grew into weeks, the piles of candles and teddy bears and ribbons at that corner only grew. People who knew Courtney gathered at this corner to offer support and also to mourn as a community for the young girl who was taken far too soon. Some people even visited daily, and there was a monthly candlelight vigil that spilled out onto the street every month. It really overtook the corner. So many people came to mourn Courtney and to offer support to each other and just to try to process what had happened, their grief. There was even a petition at one point to rename Glenhaven Way to Courtney Way, but unfortunately that never actually happened. Eight months after the murder, in July of 2001, the FBI narrowed in on 20-year-old Justin Weinberger based on this Adidas visor that was left near Courtney's body at the riverbank. So basically, how they used this Adidas visor was they looked at all of the purchases of this exact model of visor made by credit cards in the greater Sacramento area. Apparently, this visor was somewhat of a newer model, so there weren't a ton of people that had bought it yet by the time that Courtney was uh, kidnapped. There was a list, but it was small enough that officers were able to kind of go through the list name by name, and one name stood out. Weinberger was a loner, but just two days before Courtney's murder, he had his computer seized by FBI agents for his collection of child porn. Two days before the murder that happened. Weinberger's father was a county prosecutor, and By all accounts, he was devastated by the raid and what it had uncovered, but he was also trying to protect his son. In later interviews with Justin Weinberger, he claimed that after the raid, in his mind, he knew he was facing these major child pornography charges, and he knew that the sentence was going to place him in federal prison, likely for a really long time. So, At that point, he decided that he was going to act out his desire to have sex with an underage virgin. Basically, he wanted to commit a crime that was quote-unquote worthy of the jail time that he would be facing. It was then that he purchased a gun and waited outside of Mitchell Middle School where he spotted Courtney Sconce. He had no prior interactions with Courtney. They had never met She was truly a random target, and she was just in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people around. On November 8th of 2000, after Justin abducted Courtney, he drove her about an hour away to an area that she wasn't familiar with. He led her to a riverbank and had her remove all of her clothes and then raped her. Afterwards, Justin said they both sat dressed and just watched the water for a little bit of time. Maybe they chatted a little bit, who knows, but at some point he raped her again. After the second rape, Justin knew that Courtney would be able to identify him, and in his twisted mind, because she could identify him, he had to kill her. So he strangled her with his bare hands, and she fought back. She struggled, but ultimately... She was not able to overcome Justin's strength. After she died, Weinberger fled. He sped off immediately. Someone actually was fishing along the river, and Justin saw the boat coming down and panicked and fled as fast as he can, as he could. Um, and in that kind of panicked state, he left behind an Adidas visor that would ultimately lead investigators straight to his door. A few months after Courtney's murder, before Justin Weinberger had been named as a suspect, the child pornography charges against Weinberger were actually reduced to criminal misdemeanor charges. So this is super frustrating for me and probably anybody listening, but this man, Justin, had a treasure trove of child pornography. And so remember, Justin's father was in the criminal prosecutor's office. So it's not really surprising, although it should be, that these charges were dropped. Prosecutors denied that it had anything to do with his father's position, but come on, why else would they be dropped? So because of these reduction in charges, Weinberger was actually no longer facing the a hard time in federal prison. Basically his whole quote unquote motive or I guess trigger for wanting to go out and act out his desires to rape someone, to rape a child. Basically that motive was taken off the table and he didn't even have to worry about it. After those charges were reduced, he attempted to kind of return to a normal life, was going to work again. he, basically thought he was getting away with murder. He he knew that Courtney's murder had been in the news, but he also didn't feel like they were close to getting him. Even though he felt pretty confident, he still remained pretty reclusive in his parents' house. After the federal investigators determined that Jeremy was most likely their suspect in Courtney's murder, they attempted to go to his home, which again, he lived with his father who worked at the criminal prosecutor's office. But when they got to the home, Jeremy wasn't there. But his father answered the door, and he talked to the agents. Because of his father's status, because his father worked for the criminal prosecutor's office, the agents felt comfortable talking to him for some crazy reason. This is still the father of a murder suspect. But the agents told his father why they were trying to find Jeremy. They told him that his son was wanted for murder, thinking that his father was somehow going to take the agent's side or the side of justice. But that's not what happened. Right after the agents left the house, Jeremy's father told him, hey, you're wanted by the FBI. So Justin Weinberger fled. He went to New Mexico and tried to escape. The next day, Jeremy's father attempted suicide. He ultimately survived this attempt, but he was obviously torn up over his decision and the situation that, honestly, those officers, those agents put him in. The agents never should have put him in that position. They never should have told him that his son was wanted for murder and then, you know, place that burden on him. Jeremy was apprehended shortly after arriving in New Mexico, so he wasn't able to flee from justice for very long. Once he was apprehended, agents searched his car, which is normal, and investigators found more child pornography, photos of Jeremy wearing the clothes that were found at Courtney's crime scene, and a shoe that matched the size and tread of the footprints left at the scene. Initially, Justin Weinberger claimed to be innocent. He said it wasn't me. I had nothing to do with it. This is crazy. But the investigators had already matched his DNA to the DNA that was found on Courtney. And once they told him this, his stance changed. He confessed to everything, detailing to investigators exactly what happened on that November afternoon. He told them how he managed to abduct Courtney, how many times he raped her, and how he ultimately killed her. After his confession, he asked right then and there for the death penalty. He he had been suicidal before the arrest, obviously had mental issues, and at this point, he didn't see any reason for living his life out behind bars. The court didn't grant his request of death. Justin Weinberger pled guilty in court and was instead sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. He also received additional time for kidnapping and the sexual assault of a minor. The Sconce family moved away from Rancho Cordova, and the candles and cards stopped appearing at Courtney's Corner. Today, there's rarely a sign of what happened there and how it affected an entire community. I was just one year younger than Courtney Sconce, and although I didn't know her personally, she was close with my best friend at the time of her murder. I went to her memorial. It filled the entire middle school auditorium with people who were affected by the murder. I spent a lot of time at Courtney's Corner, crying for Courtney, even though I wasn't really fully able to understand the horrors that she had experienced. I sat and listened to my friends reminisce about Courtney, how she loved playing basketball with the boys, how her favorite colors were blue and yellow, and how she enjoyed sleepovers with her friends. I wasn't allowed to walk anywhere alone anymore. I was constantly reminded to be aware of my surroundings, and I was terrified of a car pulling over next to me. I was only 11, and in an instant, the innocence of my childhood was gone. And danger felt closer than ever. But it was nothing compared to what Courtney had been through and what her family had been to. And I still think about Courtney a lot. I wish I had known her. She seemed like a really kind person, a really nice person who cared so much about her friends. And she did not deserve to be taken. The corner of Cordova Lane and Glenhaven Way will always be Courtney's corner to me. This episode is dedicated to Courtney Sconce and the Sconce family. Thank you so much for listening to Morbid Tourism. This has been episode one, Courtney's Corner. If you liked us or you just want to hear more, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I will be releasing new episodes every Tuesday. In between episodes, you can visit www.morbidtourism.com to learn more about Morbid Locations. You can also follow us on Instagram at tourism. This podcast is researched, hosted, produced, and edited by me, Jules Kruger. Sources for this episode include the LA Times and the Cinemaholic, along with my own recollection of Courtney's Corner.